Philippians chapter 1 as we continue our walk through Philippians chapter 1. We're coming today to what is maybe the most famous verse in the whole letter, and maybe even one of the most famous verses in the whole Bible. And let me just be upfront and honest, this verse is wedged into a thought. Contextually, it finds itself right in the middle of a discussion, right in the middle of Paul's thought, but because of its significance, because of its um, nature of being quoted very often, I thought it would be good for us to look at it by itself, that we might have a a better understanding and be built up by it. So while verse 6 can't be divorced from the other verses around it, we're going to take it by itself and maybe in the next several weeks try to highlight how it's connected. It's really a verse that's built on verse 5 and it's a verse that helps explain verse 7 and the rest of the verses. In fact, uh, verses 3 through 11 are one singular thought and statement and, and argument or, or um, declaration by the Apostle Paul. The main phrase, if you remember from the last week that we looked in Philippians 1, verses 3, 4, and 5 are the, are the kind of the main thrust of the beginning of the letter. And Paul's main phrase in that section is verse 5 partnership in the gospel and he says I'm thankful to God for you Philippian believers and I have joy in my gratitude to God for you because of your partnership in the gospel I'm thankful to God that I know you that you know me that we have a relationship and that this relationship has continued for many years now and the ups and the and the downs I still am filled with joy because you've been a partner with me and you've been partners together in the gospel, specifically from the first day until now. We know the first day of this church. It's in Acts chapter 16 where this church is miraculously started. Paul's present when this church is started and he knows firsthand personally what the first day was like for these Philippian believers. And he says, from the very beginning to today, you've been a partner in the gospel And that means you've received the gospel with me. You're believers. Born again. Saved. But you also advance the gospel with me. Chapter 4. Paul's going to highlight the material gift that they gave him to help him while he's in prison. And to help him in his missionary journeys. In fact, he'll even say, when there was no other church to enter into partnership with me, you did when you were able. You even sent one of your own to minister to me and my needs. Epaphroditus. They are partners with Paul in receiving and advancing the gospel. And that has bound his heart to them. He is thankful for them. But then he comes to verse 6 and he goes from this kind of recollection of himself and his personal statements in verses 3, 4, and 5. And he changes his direction ever so slightly and he changes his language. In verse 6 he becomes more direct And it's a specific instruction to them. It's a specific statement directed at them. Not just remembering his um, love and devotion to them, but something now to encourage them. Something now to stir them up. Something now to motivate them. As I said, it's a verse built on verse 5. Verse 6 is built on verse 5. It's got this connecting transition word in it. And it begins this way, and... And it's not connected so much to the main phrase of verse 5, partnership in the gospel, as it is to the time language in verse 5, the secondary phrase from the first day until now. Essentially what Paul is saying is, I've witnessed your perseverance and your endurance in the gospel, your devotion into the gospel all these many years from the very beginning till now, and that leads me to say something. It means something. It implies something. Your continuance has weight. And so verse 6 is a very pastoral statement. He's not rebuking. He's not defending. He's building up. He's encouraging. And he's saying, your devotion to the gospel means I have a certain degree of confidence in what takes place in your life. Notice what he says in verse 6. In fact, let's read the whole verse. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He begins with that personal pastoral statement, I am sure of this, confident in this, certain of this one singular truth. I've witnessed something to be true about you. And that truth is that God has marked you. God is working in you. 
It's a statement that's meant to give them hope. It's a statement that's meant to comfort them. Especially in trying times. And in fact, that's why this verse has gained such a reputation. All throughout church history, Christians have latched on to this verse in trying times. That God is doing a work in us. God is doing a work in me. And Paul, in a very pastoral way, changing his tone, changing his language, changing his direction, comforts them with a certain confidence he has. Again, I've witnessed your partnership. I've witnessed your devotion. And that leaves no doubt in my mind that God is working in you. God has worked in you. God is working in you. God will work in you. It's a statement that squashes fear. It's a statement that induces motivation. He makes this statement not just based on their proven partnership in verse 5. Not just on that phrase from the first day until now. He makes this statement also based on the character of God. I can be confident because... You have endured, but you haven't endured by your own ability, and you haven't endured by your own might and your own merit. You've endured because God is faithful. He based his confidence for these Christian people on God's character. Notice in verse 6, it's not just the good work that's the emphasis of the text, though that's the main emphasis of the verse. It's also on who's doing the good work. God has begun a good work in you. And it's implied God will complete that good work in you. It's the character of God that gives Paul confidence. God has sustained them. God has kept them. God will keep them going. Because this is the God who keeps, isn't He? He's the God who finishes what He starts. He's the God who doesn't stop halfway in a project. He's the God who's faithful. And based on... God keeping them thus far, he says, I think God and no God will keep you forevermore. Now let's ask in verse 6, what is the good work that Paul is talking about? And I think there's a little bit of misconception here. First, we need to know that this is a good work that has begun and is yet not completed. And so it has a past aspect to it and it has a future element to it. It even has a present element to it because Paul's language is, I am presently sure that the past tense work of God will, future tense, be completed by God. And so we talk about this work that God has done in verse 6 as being sure, as beginning, but yet not yet being complete. It's that already but not yet motive we find in the New Testament. We talk of many things like that. For instance, our salvation, we talk about in terms of being already but not yet, right? We are already justified before God. We are already made right with God. And yet, our salvation is not yet fulfilled until Christ returns. Same is true here in verse 6. This already but not yet. This work that has begun and is good and sure and true for you and yet... It's a work that still needs to be completed. Now, two things to say about the work itself. What is the actual work? Well, first, and I think secondarily, it is the work of salvation. What is the work God has begun in them? He has begun the work of salvation. Salvation is that work where He converts us. He makes us alive. He justifies us and redeems us, and He begins to sanctify us. And I think sanctification is what is most intended here in verse 6. You remember back in verse 1, the recipients of the letter, when Paul talks about who the recipients are, he calls them all saints. Saints and sanctify come from the same Greek root word. Though they don't sound anything alike. They mean to be holy, They mean to be pure. They mean to be distinct or set apart from the world. That's a simple way of understanding your sanctification. God is taking you away from worldly living, away from your fallen flesh and fallen nature, and He's making you more like Christ. He's making you righteous. He's making you godly. He's sanctifying you, pulling you out, setting you apart, making you 
distinct. So in one sense, Paul can write and say, you are saints who have been sanctified. You have been pulled out. You have been marked out by heaven. You have been made distinct. And that's in justification. That's in conversion. That's in being born again. That's in being regenerated. That's, been, uh, that's in being made new. All of those wonderful works that take place in a moment when God breathes new life into your soul. Salvation happens when God in the moment converts you and makes you alive. And yet, you are also being sanctified. It's a work that's progressive, isn't it? It's a work that takes place over the rest of your entire life. It's a work that's not completed until you're glorified with Christ in heaven. And it's that work that's Paul, that Paul is particularly emphasizing here. You are a people that have been sanctified and are being sanctified. Which means God has His constant influence upon you. And that constant influence is bearing some change. FYI, salvation in the biblical sense always leads to change. To relate to God and encounter God, to have God invade your heart, has an effect upon you. It produces something in you. And it's not always immediate. Often it's slow work, but it is a work nonetheless in which God transforms us. So the sanctification aspect of salvation is what Paul has in mind here, where God begins to not only just set you apart in terms of saving you, but He begins to make you different. And it is a work that takes a long time in God's plan. Charles Spurgeon highlights that word work and he begins to, in his own way, stretch it out to highlight the long-term effort of God in saving us, but also the wonder of God in saving us. And he tells us why he thinks it's the word work that Paul uses in this verse to describe salvation. He says this, Charles Spurgeon, he says, If Niagara Falls could suddenly be made to leap upward instead of forever dashing downward from its rocky height, it would not be such a miracle as to change the perverse will and the raging passions of men. To wash the Ethiopian white or to remove the leopard spots may be difficult, yet these are but surface works. To renew the very core of manhood and tear sin from its hold upon a man's heart, this is not alone the finger of God, but the bearing of His whole arm. Conversion is a work comparable to the making of a whole world. He only who fashioned the heavens and the earth could, cre could create a new nature. And it is a work that is not to be paralleled. It is unique and unrivaled, seeing that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit must all cooperate in it. To implant the new nature in the Christian, there must be the decree of the Eternal Father, the death of the ever-blessed Son, and the fullness of operation of the adorable Spirit. It is a work indeed. The labors of Hercules were trifles compared with this. Child's play compared with renewing a right spirit in the fallen nature of man. It is a good work, and it is a work that is miraculous, and it's a work that is comparable to nothing else. It's a work that only the God who can create heaven and earth could accomplish. And it's the work that Paul or that Spurgeon described there that Paul's exactly getting at. The changing of the whole inward man. Not just declaring us right before God, but actually making us godly. Actually making us like His Son Jesus. We are pardoned in salvation. Our guilt is removed. We are declared innocent. But God is also changing us. Changing our wills. Changing our dispositions. Changing our desires and our pleasures and our joys and our passions. And anything else and everything else that emanates from our own hearts. 
I think of Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. And what does God say? He says, O son of man, prophesy over these dry bones that they may live. Speak my word. And Ezekiel speaks his word and these dry bones begin to rattle and then flesh comes upon them and they live. A whole army of people. God speaks to us and makes us alive, but He doesn't just make us alive, church. He does this long-term work that He will see to its completion. He makes corrupt people pure. Defiled people pure. Hateful people full of love. Rebellious people. Obedient people who love His Word. He's doing a work in us that is totally, entirely transformative. Even in the context for these Philippian believers, it's a work that's equivalent to the causing of an earthquake so that a jailer might believe. In Acts chapter 16. It's equivalent to the casting out of a demon from a slave girl that she might be liberated in the name of Christ. Acts chapter 16. It's a work that's equivalent to the opening of Lydia's heart so that she might believe and be the first convert in Philippi and the church be established in her house. Acts chapter 16. The, the miracle that God wrought in every heart of these Philippian Christians in this church is no less than any other miracle He's ever performed. It's no less than the earthquake. It's no less than the the demon being cast out of the slave girl. It's no less than him intervening and opening the heart of Lydia so that she might believe. It's no less than any other miracle he's accomplished in human history. When God saves a person and changes them, he's bringing all of his power to bear in a glorious, gracious, merciful sort of way. It is a wonder for sinners described in Romans 5 as ungodly to actually then be made godly. And it's a wonder that God says in verse 6, that work will be completed. We taste of it now, I hope, in the fruit of our salvation. We taste of that transformation. We taste of a new nature taking hold. Though we wrestle with the flesh, we see new life taking root. But God's promise isn't just that you will be changed a little bit. The promise in verse 6 is that your change will be completed one day. That not only will you have a taste of a new nature, but there is coming a time when God will say, I'm done. My work is full. My work is complete. They are godly. They are righteous. They are holy. They are Christ-like. They are new. You know how much comfort this brings to us as Christians, right? Those besetting sins. Those constant struggles. The hounding of a constant fallen flesh. The, the grip that sin seems to have on our hearts far too often. And not just that. Just the fallen aspects, the fallen byproducts of a fallen world. A broken body. A broken mind. Broken understandings. Limited understandings. What are we to do about such things? Well, we take heart, don't we? We take confidence in the fact that God is doing a work within us and He promises in that work to bring it to full completion. That those grips that sin has upon our hearts, they are only temporary. One day, every foothold of the enemy, every finger hold of sin will be released from our hearts. And wretchedness will no longer be the word to define us. Redeemed will be the word that defines us. Wickedness will no longer plague us. Righteousness will dwell within us. 
God does a wonderful work of salvation. He makes us right in His own presence. But not just right. He converts our entire being. He transforms our entire being. And then He promises that that work He will see to Himself. He will bring it to completion Himself. He will finalize it Himself. God is on your side to bring you to holiness. But a word of caution ought to be said here. As Dennis Johnson says, this doesn't render us passive puppets in terms of our sanctification. But rather a verse like verse 6 enables us and motivates us and stirs us up to pursue sanctification, doesn't it? It doesn't lead us to just sit on the sidelines and say, well, God will do to me what He wishes. I don't need to put forth effort. Rather, it's what motivates our effort. It's what enables our effort. It's what gives fuel to our effort. Dennis Johnson goes on to say this. He says, although God's Spirit will successfully complete His renovation of our hearts, we must still resist the ingrained habits of our hearts that contradict His holiness and love. In fact, certainty of the Spirit's ultimate success is what gives us reason to expect that our erratic efforts to redirect our hearts can actually progress. In other words, it's what gives us hope that our feeble attempts at being godly will actually progress into real godliness. Because God has promised to see it through. Later in this very letter, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul's going to tell the Philippian believers, work out your salvation. Be active in it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, he told the Corinthian church, since we have these promises of the, of the faithfulness and nearness of God, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Notice the emphasis is on our ability there or on our obligation there. Let us cleanse ourselves. Let us bring holiness to completion. Verse 6 doesn't render us passive puppets. Verse 6 enables us to join God in His work of pursuing righteousness. Because though I fail and though I stumble and though my erratic efforts are incomplete, God will still see it through to the end. God will still see my sanctification to completion. This verse motivates you and I. It motivates the Christians in Philippi at the time that they read it to keep fighting. To not give up in the face of this world, in the face of their own flesh. To resist sin and to pursue righteousness and godliness. It's a constant reminder for the church that we will have the day in the end. And victory will belong to our Lord. And though we plague ourselves now with a fight against our fallen flesh, one day it will be no more. Again, Mr. Johnson says, God's work of regeneration rescued us from spiritual death. His declaration in justification rescued us from guilt and condemnation. And through His reconciliation and adoption, He has rescued us from alienation. But God will not stop pursuing His comprehensive rescue plan until He has liberated us thoroughly from the loitering presence and influence of sin. We still have further questions to ask of verse 6. I think his discussion about salvation here is true, but I think it's secondary to what he's really saying. We have to ask ourselves the question, why? Why is this verse here? And why is Paul injecting it here and now in the flow of this thought? What's it doing here and how do we explain it? 
I'll give you the answer. I do not think the emphasis of this verse is individualistic, which is how we tend to take it. We look at verse 6 and we take it as God's personal work within us. And I spent time talking about that because it is partly true. God first works in the individual, doesn't He? But Paul's discussion here, especially in verses 3 through 11, but even in the very near context, 5, 6, and 7, is all about the corporate gathering of the whole church. He's talking about them as one body. He's talking about them as a whole church together. In this together. In fact, in verse 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, he uses all plural language. The plural you. The plural your. The plural you all. And other indicators to drive home the point that he's talking about the whole church of the believers together. Now in verse 6, he doesn't change his approach. It's still the plural language that he uses in verse 6. The word in you is plural you. He's not changing directions just on a whim. Rather, he's highlighting that God is doing a good work in all of you. Not just individually in saving and sanctifying you, but all of you together as one body. What is the corporate work? The corporate good work that God is doing? Well, I'll tell you what it is. He is sustaining their partnership in the Gospel. Both with each other and with the Apostle Paul. In other words, what Paul is really getting at, mostly in verse 6, though the individual nature of it is certainly there, what he's getting at mostly in verse 6 is that God is unifying them for gospel advancement and He's keeping them unified for gospel advancement. That He is the one who's brought them together and He is the one who will see them through to the end staying together. God ties a church together. And only God can keep a church together. This is especially important for the Philippian believers at the time Paul writes to them. Remember that they are facing pressure and opposition both from within and without. Without, in chapter uh, chapter 3, Paul writes and reminds them, you have enemies of the cross of Christ. He says, I tell you now even with tears, there are many who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And we know their background. We know their culture. They live in a pagan culture. The predominant religion of the time was the imperial cult. And there was hostility shown towards them all the time. To be a Christian at the time of these Christians was not a popular thing by by any means. You often had to sacrifice significantly if you were marked as a Christian. That they are even facing pressures from within. Chapter 4, and really leading up to chapter 4, but explicitly mentioned in chapter 4, they're facing credible threats of disunity and division. There are two leading ladies in the church with some influence named Euodia and Syntyche, and there's obviously division between them. And that division, if it hasn't already, certainly threatens to fracture the whole church's unity. So what are they to do with pressures without and pressures within? Usually such situations lead to great senses of hopelessness and despair and discouragement, don't they? Trials like this tempt us to give up. And in our culture where there's a church on every corner, Such trials usually just mean we start over somewhere else. I could stand on a soapbox and talk for hours about the harm that is created when we church hop and sacrifice long-term commitment, but I'll save that for another day. What What are these Christians to do with these pressures? They probably have some genuine questions. What's going to come of their partnership? I bet their pastors have genuine questions. 
I was going to say the Smiths as an example, but we have a family here named the Smiths. Are the Browns going to stick it out or not? Are they going to pack up and leave because they're mad? These questions aren't just questions for the Philippian church. They're questions that are timeless, aren't they? Will we endure? Will we succeed? Will we be able to stand? Furthermore, there's personal questions that every church has to face. How can any of us ever expect to last in such relationships that are meant to happen within the church? Relationships of extreme diversity oftentimes. How are we supposed to stay committed to people who are so different from us? In background, in upbringing, in experience, in financial status or social status or career path or race or ethnicity? How can we ever expect any of these relationships to ever last? They're fun to talk about. But really, how will they endure? And take, don't, don't just take diversity. Take the sinful fallen nature of all of us. How are these relationships not just meant to exist, but to also further the gospel and also reveal the nature and goodness of God? That, that's what we're supposed to do in our relationships. How can these relationships express any divine revelation of good when we're all fallen? When it's hard enough to get along because we're different, but then add to that we're sinful. And self-centeredness is our natural inclination. And we, we base and view and judge everything almost exclusively off of personal preference. How are such relationships ever going to exist? And how can they ever endure when the world comes bearing down on us, when there's fractures within and the truth is, and the answer is the same for every church and every generation. God is the only one who ever starts a church, and God is the only one who can ever keep a church. It's God who started the Philippian church. It's God who will keep the Philippian church. And it's God who started Trinity Baptist Church. And it's only God who will keep Trinity Baptist Church. It doesn't matter how much money we dump into the machine. It doesn't matter how much time we spend around each other. How much time we, we attend services together. The only way we qualify as a church in the eyes of God is if He first designates us one as Himself. And, is it, and secondly, if He keeps us as one himself no church exists without God's approval no church endures without the determination of God to keep his people gathered together we see that true in all parts of the world today there are many places where it is illegal for our brothers and sisters to be together it's illegal for them to own a Bible. It's illegal for them to talk about their faith. It's illegal for them to mention the name of Jesus Christ. And yet, what do they do? They don't cower and hide. We have too many first-hand reports where they continue to worship in secret. And they smuggle their Bibles in secret. And they witness under threat of execution. Brothers and sisters risking their life, not knowing if their neighbor whom they're about to share the gospel with will tell the authorities or not. And furthermore, there are brothers and sisters all around the world who worship openly because it's somewhat permissible in their country, but they do so at great personal expense. Perhaps losing their job, their families being threatened, their property being revoked, their lives being threatened. Just this week, I saw an article of a hostile country where a church was massacred when they were meeting. And they think they found via satellite imagery the mass burial spots of these Christians. Do 
Church, even if we are all to die, the truth is that by God's desire, the church will never die. And the glorious truth of verse 6 is that God began the good work of gathering them and God will do the good work of keeping them gathered. No powers or forces will prevail. Jesus said the gates of hell won't even prevail against His church. What keeps us? What helps us endure? How can we expect to have any lasting relationships? It's because God endures and keeps His church gathered. And no matter what the world does, no matter the hostility that we face, the church won't be defeated and the church won't be vanquished. And even if we have to go into hiding, the church will thrive. The church will keep existing. We need not fear her failure. Our efforts are not in vain. Our gathering is not in vain. Our attempt at building difficult relationships is not in vain. God has designed it that our relationships as Christians together would bear a significant testimony to the power of the gospel. And we need not fear that our efforts towards that end will ever be done in vain. God will bring it all to completion. You know what Paul's doing in verse 6? He's taking their relationships with each other in the face of all of this opposition and pressure. And he's elevating their relationships beyond mere human relationships. He's making their relationships heavenly relationships. Dependent on God, sustained by God, and for the glory of God. Walter Hansen says, God is the founder of every true fellowship in the gospel, and God will complete the purpose of every true fellowship in the gospel. We are not wasting our time. Very quickly, lightning round. How does God begin this work? Well, the context tells us in verse 5 and in verse 7 and following, He begins this work with the Gospel. How does God gather His church? He gathers it with the Gospel. He takes the initiative. He sets the course. And He conducts the miraculous changes in the heart. He does this because we're fallen. And no church will exist that's solely dependent upon its fallen members. As I said earlier, we're prone to self-centeredness. Even after salvation, we're prone to what Paul says in Galatians, backbiting and devouring one another even within the church. So he needs to begin with the gospel because we need to be changed. And he does begin with the gospel and he cares about gathering his people because number one, we need each other to live the Christian life in a way that honors God, don't we? Shared with you before that the only bad thing in the Garden of Eden was Adam's loneliness. And not just that he needed a wife, but that built into the DNA of every human being is this relational need by God's design. A relational need that seems to have correspondence or connection in some mysterious way to the Trinity itself. You and I need each other. And in a Christian perspective, we definitely need each other to honor God with our lives. We need each other's prayer and encouragement and love and grace and mercy and a whole host of other things. But also, more importantly, God has deemed the fellowship of His people as a significant means of exemplifying and furthering the Gospel. As I said earlier this morning, it's our unity, even in the midst of diversity, that gives this clear-sounding testimony of the Gospel's work. How can sinful people get along if not for some divine intervention? 
And that divine intervention is in the saving, transforming work of Christ. You and I aren't friends because we're good at making friends. We gather together as a church because Christ has changed our hearts and replaced whatever wickedness was there with a love for God and a love for His people. How does God keep this work? Why or, or how does He begin it? How does He keep it? The same way He started it with the Gospel. There's some interesting language in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read it to you. He says, Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the Gospel I preached to you. Now notice this. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Again, a past, present, and future description of the Gospel. It's a past tense Gospel because you received it, past tense. It's present tense because you stand in it currently. And it's future tense because you are being saved by it. In other words, the Gospel is for every moment of life for every Christian. It's not just at the beginning of our relationship with God. It is our entire relationship with God. We receive it, we stand in it, And we hold on to it and hope in it. And so how does God keep His church gathered? He keeps it gathered the same way He starts it. With the Gospel. We must continue in it. Which means we must also regularly share it with one another, right? Just because you're born again doesn't mean you don't need the Gospel. Let me read to you a very lengthy quote very quickly from D.A. Carson. He says, what ties us together as Christians? What do we talk about when we meet? Even after a church service? Mere civilities? The weather? Sports? Our careers and children? Our aches and pains? Well, none of these topics should be excluded from the conversation of Christians, of course. But what must tie us together as Christians is passion for the Gospel. This fellowship in the Gospel. On the face of it, nothing else is strong enough to hold together the extraordinary diversity of people who constitute many churches. Men and women, young and old, blue collar and white collar, healthy and ill, fit and flabby, different races, different incomes, different levels of education, different personalities. What could possibly hold us together? It is the Gospel. The good news that in Jesus, God Himself has reconciled us to Himself. This means that in our conversations, we ought regularly to be sharing in the Gospel. It has been my observation that we like to capitalize on our quarrelsome spirits by shrouding it all in Christian language. We like to argue and disagree even about Christian things. I was reading an article not very long ago. It was an article about how to defend the faith and the right and wrong way to defend the faith. It was argument upon argument upon argument, arguing about how to argue. Much more good would come from us. Yes, we need to have these discussions, absolutely, but much more good would come if our regular conversation is about the one singular thing we have in common, boasting in Christ. Our hearts would be strengthened, our faith would be encouraged, our relationships would be deepened. So not only do we share the gospel with each other, we must also partner together in the gospel to share the gospel with the lost. And then practically speaking, we must submit to the work of the Holy Spirit who removes the fruit of our flesh and Galatians 5 replaces it with the fruit of His presence. Who replaces self-centeredness with self-sacrifice. Who aligns our desires with God making us passionate about what God is passionate about which is not just the gospel message, but it's also gospel people, each other. Will you extend me a little bit more patience because I have to at least cover this portion from the verse. Notice that he says in verse 6 that the completion of this good work 
will come at the day of Jesus Christ. That is both a reference to a time and an event. A time that's in the future. An event that's the second coming of Christ. Now, just very quickly, let me take note or or make note here that the second coming of Christ often happens long after we're dead. Where that's been the true, true case for most of humanity. Most human beings have been dead much longer than they lived. And they are not yet perfected. Now, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Absolutely. But there's this interesting scene taking place in Revelation where the martyrs are under the altar and they cry out to Christ. How much longer? How much longer? There's an anticipation there of something still yet to come, even though they've passed on to be in the presence of the Lord. And that anticipation of what's to come takes place at the second coming of Christ. When Christ resurrects our bodies and unites us back and makes us whole and finally perfect. You see, that's what it means to be a human being. Not just spirit and not just made in the image of God in terms of logic and reason and thinking. But God has also made us physical, right? And the promise of the resurrection is the final completion and perfection of our, our salvation. And that's what Paul seems to be getting at here. This good work is not going to be completed until that second coming of Christ. That day when Jesus comes back. Which could be for most brothers and sisters and even for us long after we're dead. And so what's, what's the point? What, what's God doing in perfecting our relationships with Christians even after death? The completion doesn't occur until Christ comes back. And I think the reason is because it has always been God's great desire to gather His people. And the gathering of His people will be the culminating work of redemption. The eternal expression of His saving work. What's the glorious scene of humanity around the throne? It's human beings who are redeemed and saved from every nook and cranny of the globe, worshiping the Savior. Heaven, if anything, is at least a picture of God's people gathered forever. Take note then what Paul must be saying in verse 6. That God gathers us here and now, and God keeps us gathered here and now, and God so prioritizes our gathering, He will complete it in heaven together. Our relationships now with brothers and sisters do extend into eternity around the throne of Christ worshiping. God's gathering of His people is not some fancy thing to talk about. It's something that's established by God, kept by God, guided by heaven, and is the expression of the gospel's power. The good work that God has begun, He begins now. And He sees it through to the end. And even at the end, even at the day of Jesus Christ, when it's finally completed, it's not over. God's people will be gathered to worship Him. Church, let us take comfort and let us take heart that on a personal level, sin will not have the last say in our lives. God will finish His sanctifying work. He will bring us to completion. And as a church, let us take comfort together that no matter our conflicts and no no matter our disagreements and no matter the pressures within and no matter the pressures without, the church will not fail. God will sustain her. God will keep her. And her efforts aren't done in vain. And one day, our fellowship together will be perfect in heaven around the throne. We work and we labor and we prioritize being together today in gospel relationships. And that is how we will spend eternity. Father, Your Word is a blessing to us. 
It tells us of things we must know. It gives us hope and encouragement. You are a God who doesn't stop halfway. You're a God of infinite patience. You endure with us. You don't give up on us. But even more than just on a personal individualistic level, you are binding us together as your church. Tying our hearts in the gospel of Christ. And one day when you come back, Lord, your gathering of your people will be complete. And with one voice, we will ascend into heaven with a shout. And together forever sing the praises of you, our King. Keep gathering, Lord. Keep reaping your harvest. And by your grace and your mercy, keep us gathered. For our good and for the advancement of the gospel and for your glory in changing sinners' hearts to love you and love each other. It's in your name I pray. Amen.